This is episode 48 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, I'm Brandon Collinsworth, founder of Real Results Fitness Gym and a Nike master trainer. If you want to pump up your well-being and learn to thrive in life, then this is the only podcast for you. Next Year Now with my brother, Tom Hefner. You still get a gap, I think, between what some kids are able to do with their potential and, and others. So that led me, that question of what is the psychology of achievement, led me to the question, why do people give up uh, before they get somewhere on something that's hard? Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. We're so fortunate to have yet another New York Times bestseller on the show. In just a moment, Angela Duckworth will join us. She's the author of Grit, the CEO of the Character Lab, And without a doubt, the best professor I had while studying at the University of Pennsylvania. Sorry, Adam. In our conversation, Angela and I will discuss why she decided to pursue grit and how she defines it, the most effective habits and practices we can develop to become gritty, how we can cultivate more grit in schools, what leaders and organizations need to know to create a gritty culture. You're not going to want to miss this one book recommendations to remind us of the beauty of achievement, and so much more. Angela Duckworth is the founder and CEO of Character Lab, a nonprofit whose mission is to advance the science and practice of character development. How cool is that? She's also the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, faculty co-director of the Penn Wharton Behavior Change for Good initiative, and faculty co-director of Wharton People Analytics. Previously, Angela founded a summer school for low-income children that was profiled as a Harvard Kennedy School case study. And in 2018, get this, they celebrated their 25th anniversary. She's also been a McKinsey management consultant and a math and science teacher. Angela completed her undergraduate degree in advanced studies neurobiology at Harvard, a master's in science in neuroscience from Oxford University, and finally a PhD in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her first book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, is a number one New York Times bestseller. If you're a fan of grit like I am, then I know you want to jump right into this conversation with Angela. Her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, is a bestseller and a driving force for parents and educators around the world. We're going to dive right into it in just a minute, I promise. But first, let's get to know Angela a bit more. Angela, grit is an incredibly important topic these days. You see it in education. Uh, I was literally just at my son's elementary school open house and the teachers were all discussing grit and how they're going to integrate it into their curriculum. They had your books. It was awesome. And you see it at work with companies trying to figure out how to hire gritty candidates. You see it in sports with coaches like Pete Carroll and his team, the Seattle Seahawks, trying to draft gritty players. And your work over the last decade is a huge reason for the rise of grit. 
but it hasn't always been that way. And I don't think I'd be going out on a limb if I said that it probably wasn't a very popular field of research when you started your PhD. And you studied with Martin Seligman, who, you know, a giant in the field of psychology. So you could have had your pick of research topics. Why did you choose to study grit then? Before I became a psychologist, I was a classroom teacher. I taught math to teenagers who were in middle school or high school. And that experience gave me uh, a real uh, interest in the psychology of achievement. And, and it did so because I felt strongly that my students were able to achieve, at least intellectually, things that I was not able to get them to achieve as their teacher, at least. Um, and so the gap between what you can do and what you do do from a psychological standpoint, obviously there are realities like not having access to certain schools or, you know, experiences. But I think, you know, all the kids in the same class with relatively similar opportunities, you, know, you still get a gap, I think, between what some kids are able to do with their potential and, and others. So that led me, that question of what is the psychology of achievement led me to the question, why do people give up uh, before they get somewhere on something that's hard, or maybe never find anything that they care enough long about to even be interested in it to, to ask questions like they should be. So that combination of perseverance and passion for the long term is what I call grit. And that was something I started studying in my very first and second year of graduate school. Angela, this show is all about helping people to thrive at work and in life. And a big part of our lives, one that I think is probably the most important, obviously I'm biased, is uh, our kids, because I have three kids. <laughs> we want our kids to to be successful. We want our kids to to be happy. We want our kids to achieve. And I think that developing grit is a great way to help them on their journey. So how can we as parents help our kids to become gritty? What are maybe two or three effective habits or practices we can help them cultivate? Can I ask how old your kids are? Uh, you can. So uh, we really spread the gap on our kids. We have a 10-year-old uh, who's going into fifth grade. We have uh, a, actually six today. Um, and we have a nine-month-old. Wow. Okay. So you have a baby and then you have a kid who's almost ready for middle school and maybe will be turning the corner on adolescence soon. And then another kid who's in between. Is that right? Yeah. So we have some time to uh, course correct if we screw up with the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have two kids and they are 16 and 15 years old. They're both girls. So I have um, a lot of empathy for parents who are asking the question, question, you know, what can I do to put my kids on the right path, especially when it comes to grit or other aspects of character? And I think the first and most important thing that a parent does for grit or for kindness, for honesty, for tolerance is to provide a role model of what you hope your kids will grow up to be. And this shouldn't be the expectation that you're perfect because you're not, nor <laughs> will your kids be, nor is it healthy to grow up thinking that perfection in grid or anything else is possible, but just that you are intentional in modeling, for example, uh, with grit. You know, if you want your kids to be resilient in the face of setbacks, then when you have a bad day, I think you should share that with your kids in, in the appropriate way you know, mommy had a bad day. Why did mommy have a bad day? Well, you know, mommy really, really wanted to get a certain project funded, meaning I needed <laughs> some money. And guess what? Today, I learned that I didn't get what I wanted, that somebody else's project got picked. 
And then your kid needs to see what you do with that, right? You know, maybe mm-hmm. they'll see you cry, which by the way, I think is fine. You know, they can see mommy cry or daddy cry, but they need to see you pick yourself up the next day, maybe the day after, um, and, and to figure out how you're going to get that project funded another way. I think modeling for all aspects of, of human character is the first and most important way that parents of kids of any age are able to um, cultivate, you know, and help kids get onto the right path. And then beyond that, especially when your kids are older, I think that actually helping them find other role models, for example, when your kids are, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, or even younger, they might start playing a musical instrument like piano. They might join a sports team like track. They might end up working for the school newspaper. And those adults who are their coaches, their teachers, their editors, they will be doing what you've been doing. But actually, in many ways, they have an advantage, which is that, you know, they don't have all of the complex feelings that they have (laughs) for kids, you know, like, oh, I sort of feel guilty that I gave you that, you know, and, and if, if they do their job well, I think they can be an enormously positive influence on, on healthy development. It's funny that you say pick an instrument because my, my oldest son plays cello and like halfway through his first year, he wanted to quit. And I was like, listen, you can quit, but you have to do it the whole year. Uh, you can't quit like midway through the year. And so uh, I caught a lot of flack for making him finish it. out. <laughs> uh, and then it turns out he didn't quit. He he kept playing it uh, the last year and he's going to play it again this year. So uh, I don't know if I did it the, the right thing or not, but uh, that's just kind of what I did. You know, I, I'd love to talk about that a little bit because um, I, if for, you know, the, for the years that my kids were in kindergarten, you know, I had this struggle, you know, do I let them quit or do I not let them quit? And, you know, am I being a tiger mom? I kind of don't want to be a tiger mom. Maybe I should be a tiger mom. It's a real <laughs> struggle. And I think every parent recognizes that. Um, I think it was a great thing that you didn't let your son quit in the middle of a commitment. And that's something else that kids need their parents to help them learn that you can't quit on a bad day in the middle of commitment. Unless, of course, you know, you have a really good compelling reason. reason right, right, yeah, right? You know, and of course, there are exceptions. But I think as a rule, um, that was a good thing. You know, why do kids want to quit in the middle of commitments? Well, sometimes they realize that something's just not for them, you know, but it's not going to kill them to finish the season and to fulfill <laughs> the obligations. The other reason why I think kids quit is that they have a bad day, you know, like they lose the race and it kind of uh, hurts to lose. It's embarrassing. Um, or maybe they had practice on a day that they would rather actually go out with their friends. But that idea of doing something, even though you had a bad day and doing it again, um, is, is, is really important. I think what kids need to learn to do is to quit things on good days. I mean, if everything's going well and you still hate uh, what you're doing, like it's not a, a local, you know, thing that's making you not like it, then once that commitment is up with some clarity, you can um, make a decision like, you know, I'm not going to do track next year. No, I think that's uh, that's that's really true. The other thing that we did was we told him, well, if you're going to quit um, at the end of the you know at the end of the the school year for your your cello, the orchestra, you have to write a letter to your friends and to your teacher and just say, hey, this is the reason why I'm quitting. And in, in some ways, that felt you know a little bit over the top. But what I was trying to do was get him to slow down in that moment when he was upset and it was hard and it was difficult to say, okay, to think through it a little bit more and be a little bit more intentional. Now, it might have also added a layer of uh, one extra thing he had to do. So <laughs> maybe that helped but too. Actually, I don't that's know. a good thing, right? Because you're, you're trying to make it so that it wasn't an easy way out of a difficult situation. 
and, and to make it a hard way out of a hard situation. That I think that's a, that's great that what you did. The other thing you might try as your kids continue to grow up, try things, and then of course quit things, which again is fine um, when they quit for the right reasons and at the right time, is to make sure that they're always doing a hard thing. In other words, I don't think that many kids are going to have the self-discipline to say, oh, at all times, I should be doing something that takes practice, where I get feedback, where I win some, I lose some, and to have it as a family rule that everybody in the family does a hard thing that takes practice, where you get feedback, or you win some and you lose some. So that way, if your kid quits the cello or track, and they know that as, as a rule, they're going to have to do something else, they're not going to you know, quit for laziness sake. <laughs> no, I love that idea. That's fantastic. Well, let, let, let's pull the thread on our kids a little bit more. Angela, kids spend a lot of time in school. It's kind of like adults in work. We spend more time with our colleagues than we do with our family. And I think kids spend probably more time with their peers and teachers than they do with their family. So it's obvious, right? Schools play a huge role in shaping our kids. And with that in mind, is there anything different kind of what you, from what you've just uh, shared with us that schools can do to help grow and nurture gritty students, if you will? Some psychologists like to call studenting the job or the profession of young people, right? You know, we have have our jobs and they have theirs. And um, it's one of the reasons why I became a teacher is, is exactly what you said. So what can schools and what can teachers do? I think teachers should, first of all, be recognized as that role model who, in some cases, does spend more time physically with, with kids than, than even parents do in some cases. And so it's an enormous responsibility and an honor for them to do that. You know, when a teacher closes the door to the classroom in which they're teaching, they have basically created their own microculture. It's like having your own little nation with your own rules <laughs> and customs. And I think kids will adapt, you know, it's the beginning of the school year for most students. And, you know, kids do this everywhere in the country. They, they're they like watching their teachers and they're getting the lay of the land. They're figuring out what the culture is going to be of that classroom for the rest of the year. The two defining features of a positive classroom or school culture uh, are one, that it is supportive, uh, and two, that it is demanding. By supportive, I mean that kids should feel safe there. They should feel respected. Um, To the extent possible, they should feel autonomous. In other words, they should feel like their own opinions don't have to match exactly what the teacher thinks is true or what their kids who are to the left or to the right of them uh, in the same classroom think is true. That's the kind of warm, supportive, uh, trust-building environment that classrooms, I hope, across the country will be like this year, but also demanding. And that is to say that kids should get an endless um, an endless sequence of, uh, of feedback on things that they can do better each and every day. So I hope that there are not lots of hundreds that are handed back on, you know, tests and on essays, <laughs> because, you know, what... What, what you really want is a kid to learn, you know, and learn endlessly from what can be better in every subject and also in how they're behaving. So, yes, praise kids for being nice. But also when you see that, you know, it would have been nice if you had um, actually taken the time to, you know, write a note of thanks to that speaker uh, because they took some extra time with you. 
you know, don't hesitate as a teacher or a school principal to be demanding. It's another way of showing love. So classroom teachers and principals are really, in a way, creating their own um, cultures that will profoundly affect the kids in that room, not only while they're in that room, but, uh, you know, most of us can remember our our time as students, uh, even when we grow up, even when it's decades ago. You can and always it, remember your favorite teacher, your, fir- your, your uh, first teacher. They were probably, your favorite teacher was probably supportive and demanding, right? I mean, yeah. it's usually not the pushovers who you remember three, four decades later. So, um, so that's some general advice. And I'm also impressed by teachers who are continuously learning that don't feel like, this year is just another year, but in fact, are always asking, you know, what am I going to do differently this year to make it a better year for my students? Angela, something you said there really stood out to me, and that was around feedback, right? And being able to track their progress. And so I always go back to one of my favorite management leaders um, uh, to study, and that's Peter Drucker. And one of his uh, quotes was, and it's my, probably my, my, my favorite quote, is that what gets measured gets managed. And, and basically he was saying, if you want to improve something, if you want to make it better, you have to be able to measure it so that you can measure your progress. How can we as parents or educators, can we measure grit and track it in some way, whether that's in a very detailed way, quantitative way, or maybe at a higher qualitative way? You know, I don't have a yardstick for grit. And, and what I mean by that is I don't have a completely unfakeable precise, unbiased measure of grit that I can give to parents or teachers or leaders and and have them use it the way you use a yardstick, right? Because a yardstick's awesome. It is exactly (laughs) all those things that I said. What I do have is a grit scale, which is a self-report questionnaire that is uh, helpful, I think, for self-reflection. Um, in other words, you could take the grit scale and learn something about yourself because rather than just asking yourself, gee, I wonder how gritty I am, I can ask myself, gee, I wonder if I do finish what I begin. I wonder if I am a hard worker. I, I wonder whether I do have an interest that I am occupied with, not just, you know, for a day, but also uh, for longer periods like months or even years. It's a way of learning about yourself. I think it's an imperfect yardstick, but I think for self-reflection, the grit scale, which you can find in my book or you can look at my website, um, I think that's helpful. I think the the thing that I, I want to caution against is that when Peter Drucker said, you know, what gets measured gets managed, I think he was thinking of a company and, <laughs> you know, if you have sales figures, you know, all of a sudden everybody cares about the sales figures. And so that ends up, you know, occupying your your energy and your attention. I think that would lead people to say like, well, then we should have a, a grit gauge or we should have a curiosity meter. And because those yardsticks are not available, it, it's true that they can be overlooked. And I think Peter Drucker would not like that because he cared a lot about character. But I also just want to say that if we don't have good yardsticks, maybe we should just recognize that the, the measures that we have are primarily useful for self-reflection or for research when nobody has an incentive to look good because the data is just being used for research. Well, if nothing else, what I'm taking away from that is, because uh, I'm a big fan of journaling and encouraging my, my kids to journal. And so um, one thing that I'll be doing tonight is at least, you know, busting out the, the grid scale and taking some of those questions and then just posing them as as almost like what ifs to my to my kids. Like, hey, what if you journaled about this? Right. And, and see what the, see what they come up with. 
Or, you know, you could also, um, I love that idea. And if you could also over dinner tonight, take one or two questions from the grid scale. Like I finish whatever I begin, or, you know, I have an interest that I've, um, I've been interested in for, for, um, for more than a few weeks. And then just, you know, answer the question, like, let's go around. Like, how would you, you know, scale from one to 10 or scale from one to five? Like, what would you rate yourself? Not like there's a right answer or a wrong answer, but just, it would be an interesting thing to, to ask, why did you give yourself a two? You know, like, tell, tell me about that. I have found that it, it never um, fails to create a, a great conversation of, of group reflection. Angela, one of the things that I do is lead teams to design and build combat systems that protect soldiers around the world. And in particular, I spend a lot of time building systems that protect soldiers from improvised explosive devices. And so the nature of that work is such that we're always on the defensive. Like the bad guys are just continuously adapting and finding new ways to harm us. And what that means is that it takes a lot of perseverance. It takes a lot of overcoming obstacles to keep our soldiers safe. And while I think my challenge is unique, the problem is not. And what I mean by that is that a lot of us in the workplace, we want to build gritty teams. Like in my case, a gritty team was the team that helped, you know, uh, defeat the, the latest IED technology. So what, if anything, can we do as managers, as leaders to cultivate a gritty worker or a gritty team? I get this question a lot from really gritty individuals who call themselves <laughs> leaders. So I'll give you an example, Toby Cosgrove, um, who was actually a dyslexic who only figured this out in his, um, you know, middle adulthood. Oh, wow. Um, you know, when he did, he was like, well, that explains why it was so hard to read and do well in school. Um, he, um, despite, you know, the odds ended up becoming um, arguably the best heart surgeon in the world. And then he took over the Cleveland Clinic. Now, when you're a heart surgeon, you're a bit of a leader because you've got a team of doctors and nurses in the surgery theater. But when you are the head of the Cleveland Clinic, which has over 43,000 staff, you are really a leader. And it starts to become an urgent question. You know, how do I get this entire team, not just me, I know how to be passionate, I know how to be persevering, but how do I get everyone else to be also uh, gritty? So what did Toby Cosgrove do? I think the first thing he did was recognize his role as a role model. So he recognized that he was being watched all the time. And what he said and what he did would have a ripple effect on the whole organization. Um, the second thing he did is he started reading obsessively. And my guess is that this will resonate with you, Tom. But you know, <laughs> he could never uh, get enough. of. Like, he had a stack of books um, by his bed and in his office on management and leadership and just you know, he read Peter Drucker, he, um, you know, would reread books. And then he also asked for advice from people who, you know, knew something about management. When it came to the Cleveland Clinic, I think one of the things that made that organization um, uh, even better than when he found it, because of course, it was always a leading medical uh, institution, is that he really clarified the hierarchy of goals for the team. So like an individual, a team has a hierarchy of goals. At the very top of the hierarchy is the, is the, is the mission, you know? And for Cleveland Clinic, it was uh, patients first. So it was the welfare of patients. And everything else, you know, cost cutting, electronic records, you know, improving um, mm -hmm. the number of, uh, you know, communications and the quality of communications with the families, of it, everything else is just in service to patients first. And I would imagine the same thing would be true of the team that you were, you know, leading. There's a lot of things that you have to get done, but it's all for the, you know, purpose of um, 
saving lives, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think what he was able to do that really helped that organization become grittier is to clarify the purpose overall so that everybody could see how their, you know, work week and their contribution added up to the overall mission. And all leaders, I think, need to accept that as their responsibility and also to confront the reality, which is that it's not something that you do on Monday and then, you know, it's done. And then you don't have to worry about it for the rest of the week or the rest of the month or the rest of the year. It is a daily task is to remind the organization of what you're doing, why you're doing it and how each person's part plays an important part in the overall picture. It's not a one shot vaccine. Exactly. It is more like brushing your teeth. You have to do it twice a day. Good hygiene. Well, look, before I move on to some questions not directly related to the book, what else from your book would you like us to know? One thing that I think parents, leaders, and teachers um, I get wrong, um, uh, and it's it's obvious to me why they get it wrong, is that they think that perseverance is the more important half of grit. And when they think of grit, they think of the working hard, they think of you know coming back after setbacks, and it's almost like passion is an afterthought. But loving what you do, having genuine curiosity about what you do, feeling like you'll never get bored, and also feeling that sense of purpose, that this is something which is, I think for most people, even a moral thing. Like when you really have a calling, you feel like you're helping other people and it resonates with your deepest ethical and and moral and in some cases religious values. Uh, That passion is at least as important and think developmentally when you look at people who don't yet have grit um, or kids who are growing up, you really want to focus first on the passion. um, And if you've lost that step or missed that step, what you can come uh, two is actually an organization or a family um, or a school that's kind of like drudgery, you know, that's kind of uh, lots of hard work and, and nothing feels like fun. And actually, people are not voluntarily thinking about what they're doing when they don't have to. So I think passion is the overlooked half of grit. I want to pick up the the trail on passion. And one of the things that I'm passionate about is what I think is a truly golden habit, and that is reading. So just like you said with the the great doctor there from the the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Angela, I want you to think about the books you've really loved over the years. And what are the two or three books that have impacted you the most? I um, really loved uh, Stephen King's book. Um, It's called like Writing a Memoir. And uh, it's, I think, still on a bestseller list for Amazon. He wrote it, um, I don't know, maybe decades ago. (laughs) And it was uh, both because I loved writing and I loved reading and I actually loved his books that I decided to read it. But also it's um, kind of a memoir of what it means to be a craftsman. And when you read that book, you realize um, how it is that these page turners that, you know, you just like read them and it's like, you know, frictionless. And, and you can't imagine that there was a lot of hard work that went into it. But but I love it because I am a psychologist who studies achievement. And um, when he writes about the craft of writing and how hard it can be and his process, it is to me what I see in every other high performer. Um, and it's what's invisible uh, for, for most of us who just, you know, watch the performance and, you know, uh, this is amazing. <laughs> right. It's amazing. And it's effortless. And he's a natural. So I really loved um, Stephen King uh, on writing. Um, and then I, I would say that um, one of my more recent loves is poetry. And um, I, I got a 
book of poems by Robert Frost as a thank you gift. Um, uh, there's nothing better than thanking somebody with the with the gift of a book, maybe a book <laughs> that meant something to you. And um, so I have this book right by the kitchen table. And, you know, at breakfast, when we have time, I literally open it up to a random page. And I just read the poem that's there. And my daughters, um, and I, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, it, it hits us with an emotion, and sometimes it doesn't. But I, you know, I, I think poetry is this kind of crystallization of not only psychology, but also, it's, it's everything else has been taken out of, of what, you know, that's unnecessary. And what's left is um, what is essential. And so I'm rediscovering poetry through this recently received gift. I love that idea. And I'm, and I'm going to steal it for my kids. <laughs> yeah, over. You know, one of the things that you were talking about with uh, not seeing the, the process, the pain, the blood, sweat and equity behind it. One of the things I always remember about being in your class was you said a line that I'll never forget. I'm probably paraphrasing here a little bit, but you said uh, good writing is not written. It's rewritten. And when I heard that, uh, I started off in the MAP program, probably so-so as a writer. And then I ended, like, I thought, like a really good writer. Uh, and it was because I just learned to embrace this idea of like, okay, I'm not going to get it right the first time. I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to keep going through these drafts and like keep iterating it and getting it a little bit better each time, a little bit better. Uh, so anyways, that's something that's always stuck out with me. I am a big fan of that quote. I would love if somebody could look up. I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith who who said it. And I you know, read it once and it really resonated with me because it's so true. And, um, you know, great dancing is rehearsal, right? You know, mm -hmm. you, can, you can fill in the blank, you know, if, if you're not trying to become a better writer, you're certainly trying to become a better something. And um, the discipline of practice and also just the reality of practice. Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, is one of the writers that I admire so deeply i feel like his prose is like poetry <laughs> uh, and he of course has said famously that you know writing is to see your horribleness on page and then you know to paraphrase Coates is to you know come back to that writing um again and again and again and to make <laughs> it a little less horrible each time and when i write i guess the last thing i'll say on this is that i write a lot with uh, collaborators from very fancy universities and when you read their final work it is beautiful and fluent and it's um, seemingly effortless because that's how good it is but I have been through their first drafts and their second drafts <laughs> and, drafts. and let me tell you that behind all that beauty there is a lot of ugliness that nobody ever gets to see and if you knew how some of these you know very esteemed individuals wrote in their earlier drafts I think you would take a lot of comfort and you would have more confidence in your own ability to eventually have writing on page that is, um, as Ta-Nehisi Coates would say, not so bad. <laughs> uh, indeed. Well, look, final question. What's next for you? What are you working on now that you're really excited about? Grit is not the only thing that we want our girls and boys uh, to grow up to be. And uh, that is because it is also important to be a grateful person. It is important to be a compassionate person. It's important to be a curious and creative person, an energetic person, an open-minded person. So these other aspects of what Aristotle called character are what occupy me today. And as a scientist and as a mother and as a um, you know person who's always cared about the potential of human beings to be what they could be, I am running a nonprofit called Character Lab, and we are giving away science for free. We are taking scientific insights into the development of character, and we're creating playbooks that you can access through our website, characterlab.org. And soon we will be following in your footsteps and having a podcast 
that will hopefully bring some of the science alive through just as you have through conversation and through stories. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to hear that. Thanks. I look forward to getting advice from you. <laughs> Anytime. Well, look, Angela, this has been really amazing. I'm taking away some concrete uh, habits and practices that I can implement from just today. And I know everybody else is too. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. You were a great student and now you're a great friend. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You can connect with Angela online through her website, AngelaDuckworth.com and on Twitter with her Twitter handle at AngelaDuckW. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-D-U-C-K-W. All the links and resources Angela and I discussed can be found at the page created just for this episode, including links to the grit scale that we talked about, the character lab that she started, and the newest version of her book, the paperback version, which includes new information, stories, and insights. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 48. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.